what the advertisers are doing is truly experimental, I would say, really trying to figure out what kind of compositions are going to attract the eye in certain ways and then plant an idea in your mind. So it's that process that what I'm thinking of as a pictorial conversion process that I'm most interested in. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Amherst Williams. And I'm Ben Spohn. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. My name is Jennifer Greenhill, and I'm an associate professor of art history at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And what exactly brings you here to Hagley? Well, I've been working on a book manuscript on commercial illustration and its intersections with the advertising industry. And I'm particularly interested in how illustrators are using research in psychology to inform their design strategies for their advertising displays or their cover illustrations. This was a perfect place for me to work on this book to get outside of art history for a little bit, uh, for, I guess, a whole nine months now, um, to think about business history and to think about how art serves industry, how um, thinkers in various industries are, are looking to art for ideas, for how to sell uh, for the, the context of my book. Um, so it's been interesting to think about a a different sort of rhetoric for how to address art, um, and that's definitely happened in this context. So I've mostly used my time here to write, um, but I've been consulting advertising trade handbooks and journals like The Printing Art, like Printers Inc., and so on, um, other journals that are in the collection, which can be difficult to come by in libraries focused on art history, for example. So since I'm, you know, I'm primarily interested in these visual theories of page design and so on that are emerging in the trade literature, this library has almost everything for me in that regard. So that was unusual. So um, even beyond the trade literature, there's been quite a lot to look at just by browsing the shelves. This afternoon, I'm going over to the Soda House to look at some other information um, pertaining to the Curtis Publishing Company, for example, and pertaining to the advertising research that DuPont did um, beginning in 1926, from what I understand. So as with any sort of fellowship, there's always so much more research to be done. And sometimes you don't find out exactly what's relevant to you until the very end. So you just have to come back. DuPont's research in advertising and illustration, is that like... um... You know, that mural we have over in the soda house of the... Yeah, I think that's from the 30s, right? I'm not exactly sure yet. I mean, so much of the material um, postdates the period I'm dealing with in my book, which is, you know, the early period in the late 19th, early 20th century when psychology ends up um, informing advertising design and so on. And when the... Um, what the 
advertisers are doing is truly experimental, I would say, really trying to figure out what kind of compositions are going to attract the eye in certain ways and then plant an idea in your mind. So it's that process that what I'm thinking of as a pictorial conversion process that I'm most interested in. I'm getting all kinds of advice that it needs to stop growing. <laughs> I just need to get it out. So can you... Talk a little bit more about some of the the journals and and, uh, trade literature that you've looked at here. Yeah, so I was happy to find uh, what seems to be a full run of the printing art, which is a journal I hadn't encountered before. Um, I mean, and as is so often the case when you encounter journals online, the impression they may make on you is vastly different than the impression in real life with um, the print version. And what I found so interesting about this journal is, well, I was able to clear up um, some confusion. I had thought that one of the artists I'm working on, who was a magazine art director for a long time and a poster designer, Will H. Bradley, I had come across a reference to an article by Will, uh, Will Bradley, but it turned out in the printing art it was Will A. Bradley, Aspinwall Bradley. So... Um, it had been uh, misattributed, this article, to Will H. Bradley, my artist. And so going through the printing art, I was able to find other articles by this guy, get a better sense of who he was, and decouple the two Bradleys, which was quite important, actually. I didn't want to perpetuate an error made in the secondary literature, understandably made, you know. Um, So getting a better sense for the contributors to that journal helped me to flesh out um, that field a bit more and to see, because that journal focuses so much on materials like paper, um, like printing inks, to actually go through the journal and touch their inserts and so on, um, gave me a much stronger sense of why this thicker paper would be better for a certain kind of advertising over another, um, which I really wouldn't get online. So... Um, you're really, um, I suppose, hindered as a researcher in, at times when you, you can't just walk downstairs and go through the stacks. So I was very happy to be able to do that here. And something else I learned in going through that journal in particular was that some of the strategies I had charted in general interest American magazines and investment in tactility, for example, which we were talking about, you know, the the way the reader might move through a magazine, holding it in her hands, um, that the trade journals seem to be even more, um, I suppose, invested in acknowledging this since they are catering to a readership that's attending to paper, that's attending to the movement of the page, that's thinking about ink, that's thinking about all of those things that perhaps a general reader is not as sensitive to. So I found uh, many ads with a front and a back that would say, turn over a new leaf, where you would find examples of, you know, typography specimens and so on, on the other page. So that was very interesting to me to try to think about the general interest magazines I'm accustomed to working on in relationship to the trade journals. Um, So I think probably because of my exposure to these journals here in this way, this these sorts of trade journals will be a bigger part of my project than I had anticipated. You also have um, the Inland Printer, 
which um, the artist that I mentioned already, Will Bradley, he uh, he basically gets his start in Chicago with the Inland Printer. I mean, he does other things before and um, at the same time, but it's very interesting to me to think about how his illustrations appear in Inland Printer. So I was able to see some of these things at the Library of Congress, and then I realized that we have it here. So at a much more leisurely pace, I could just go through and consult issues from the 1890s that are in perfect condition. Why did it start in the 1890s? Like, had the, Was there anyone trying to do something similar to this earlier, or is this just... Well, I'm starting there because um, it's actually, I think it's in Printers, Inc. It might be in 1895, it might be a couple years earlier, that they uh, are credited with being the first journal to talk about psychology's impact on selling, selling strategies. Now, surely um, there must be cases that predate that, but I haven't, I haven't found them yet. So I'm not, I'm trying to be careful um, are there any particular brands that made really good use of this? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, one of the my first chapter currently um, deals with the Eastman Kodak um, ads. And I came across in one of these advertising manuals, I came across one of Kodak's ads that features blank space in an interesting way. And in, in all of the handbooks, basically, they are um, counseling the... Um, the advertising designer or illustrator to use blank space in uh, as a framing element, to use it judiciously, to avoid overstuffing or cramming your ad with as much variation as you possibly can. Let the space breathe a little bit. Well, Kodak took that to an extreme in a series um, devoted to um, basically selling the activity of studio photographers. So it'll say, there's a photographer in your town, you know, at the that's their tagline at the bottom. And the top, it will explain, um, sometimes around Christmas time, what a portrait of you could, could how it could function as a gift, essentially. Why not give your friend a, a portrait? Um, so, but there's a, there's a, a, a vast field of blank space in between the uh, prompt, the initial prompt, and then the suggestion, the sales suggestion, there's a photographer in your town. So I found that very interesting because there, this series of ads, and Kodak had so many. Um, I mean, it was, it had an incredibly robust advertising budget. It bought um, the most desirable spaces, like the back cover page, the color back cover of um, popular journals. So it, this was just one uh, facet of a very robust, um, very robust marketing, I guess. Um, I'm not sure how you describe it. But anyway, so I found it very interesting that in so, it got so much attention in the trade literature. And in one case, one writer said that it, it was so successful um, and it was worth studying because it went against all the principles that people were advising. So I found that fascinating. And so um, uh, that's that the blank space is going to be the subject of my first chapter. That's the way I'm going to get into the subject of my book, because that blank field does so much interesting work. Are these ads meant to appeal to one social class over another? Yeah, it's a very good question. 
um, well, what we can get a feel for who they're meant to appeal to by the journal they're published in. Um, but of course, some of these ads would appear across different types of journals. Um, what I found interesting is that many of the handbook writers, um, they're trying to understand basic human instincts, they put it, sort of a general consumer, which of course typically means white, middle class, uh, heterosexual. Um, they're catering to women. Sometimes they'll specify gender, sometimes not. Um, once you get into the 20s, I found more and more um, references to specific markets, specific demographics, and so on. So they understand that they need to be doing market research and so on. And the certain journals, like the farm journals, reach a different kind of, of reader than a general interest journal. Perhaps, perhaps not. Um, so I'm still in the process of tracking that. But the blank space adds this... Uh, blank space in many cases was associated with a higher class of product. Uh, so you have Tiffany, for example, their ads. Uh, I haven't found a, a, an illustration in a Tiffany ad lately. It's mostly just text framed like a bit by, by a vast field of blank space. And it does make an impression on a page crammed with other ads. So I have been tracking what sorts of brands are using this technique. And some of the um, some of the handbook writers associate this with confidence, the confidence, you know, uh, on the part of saying less, you know, um, not, you know, allowing the reader to fill in the blanks, not worrying so much about filling it all in for them. So I suppose you could say that that brand of address is a is catering to an educated reader. Are there any like publications or magazines that were sort of like pushing this limit themselves like that they're you know whoever was selling advertisement advertising space and it was really like we want to only feature you know the newest the modernist the biggest the best hmm. in our pages. That's really interesting. Um, well there what I found is that uh, especially early in the 20th century a main concern has to do with um, the veracity of the claims of advertisers. So truth in advertising is really a concern. Um, and so some journals will um, insist that they are, they're not going to allow um, companies to buy space if their claims are suspicious so that you can trust the ads in good housekeeping say, you know, they might have the seal of approval or something, these products. Um, so that, I found that um, to be the primary concern early on. Um, although that's not really a concern of my book at all. I mean, I'm just sort of, I realize that's very important for the period, but I'm more interested in the questions, the kind of questions that you just asked. And I'm, I'm not sure yet how to answer that. Um, I'm looking at a range of journals from Harper's Bazaar, Saturday Evening Post, Ladies Home Journal, uh, Woman's Home Companion, Collier's, of course. Um, and Winter Tour has a almost full run of Collier's and Ladies Home Journal in print form, so that's pretty great. Um,
else. I'm, I'm starting to look at more of the publications surrounding um, art instruction because Frank Alva Parsons of Parsons, he uh, New York, he writes um, some very important texts on advertising display and uses one of his ads for his own course in instruction as an example of a good ad. So I just... Um, I'm moving more into how art advertises itself in various ways, which is taking me into a different kind of journal. Um, but I'm not sure where that will go. Well, the reason I find, you know, I find Parsons so interesting is that in one of his texts, he's really a synthetic thinker and he will use examples of a, you know, a B movie poster advertisement. And he'll ask you to think about it in relationship to a photograph of an interior and say, look, they're both terribly organized. You know, they demonstrate no understanding of spatial principles or gravity. Um, then he'll ask you to think about a woman's dress and proportion and how that functions there in that context. He'll show you uh, uh, a Michelangelo painting and ask you to think about composition there. Again, in relationship to advertising display, it's all a book. It's a book about advertising display, but he's drawing on, you know, canonical masterworks in the history of art um, down to, I don't know, uh, an interior, as I've said. So, and I'm sure there are stranger examples that aren't coming to mind, but I find that very interesting. And it does seem to inform how he teaches art at Parsons at the New York School of Fine and Applied Art. I was able to go through the, his papers there, and they have quite a few student notes and notes from trips abroad, study courses in Rome and wherever. And um, in one of these um, one of these folders where, you know, they're, they're taking students to see Michelangelo and so on, there was a loose page about, you know, a course on advertising. So I'm wondering if these were taught at the, in the same summer. And it, it just would make sense that he's asking students to think in the way his handbooks are asking um, the general reader to think. So, um, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are wonderful books um, looking at the intersections between thinking about art and thinking about advertising and sales. But this aspect of it seems understudied. So um, I'm following that through to see what I can come up with. So I've got to ask for the local crowd, are there any um, Brandywine Valley artists that come up in your work? Any Wyeth or Pine? Oh yeah, there's so many wonderful artists. This is, I mean, that's another reason why I came here is that this is a, a center for illustration, particularly in the late 19th century. So I've done some writing for the Brandywine River Museum um, on Maxfield Parish and calendar art. And um, I've given lectures on N.C. Wyeth and I really thought he would be in my book but he's he's currently he isn't there. And I think it's really um, because the artists I'm working on, Coles Phillips, Will Bradley, Maxfield Parrish, J.C. Leyendecker, um, there some of them begin like Coles Phillips begins as in an advertising agency. He opens his own, you know, agency. Will Bradley is pitching his work to advertisers in a major way. All of his rhetoric and his writing, it's so saturated with 
um, the rhetoric of suggestive advertising. So I've just found my way to artists who are, um, I guess, fully imbricated in, in, um, sales theory in ways that, you know, someone like Wyeth has a more complex, perhaps relationship to the commercial world. Of course he does ads, you know, um, he's incredibly interesting in that regard. Um, but I suppose one of the things I'm trying to um, not necessarily get around, but at least hold at bay as long as I can, is the idea that commercial, all commercial illustrators are essentially um, aspiring painters who are desperate for the moment when they can move beyond their commercial illustrating, quote-unquote, pot boilers to do painting for themselves, um, as Wyeth did with landscapes, for example. So, um, that's maybe another reason to keep him out for the moment since he reinforces a narrative that, um, is in many respects quite true for many artists. Edward Hopper is another example of an artist who began in illustration and was desperate to move out of that. But a colleague, uh, Leo Mazow is working on and has already published on Hopper's illustrations for this magazine. I think it's called Hotel Management. Um, and it's interesting to think about his paintings in relationship to his cover work. So, uh, I, this is a roundabout way of suggesting why I'm gravitating to these other artists who have no problem with their commercial work and are trying to find avenues for creativity within that framework. And I suppose I find their solutions to be more interesting than scholars have acknowledged. Well, since I did sort of bring it back to the, the brandy wine, is there anything else in Hagley's collections that we haven't talked about yet? Or hmm. Oh, you have a full run of the art director's annual exhibition catalogs. And I've been sort of gathering these on eBay or wherever when I can find them, but I hadn't seen um, the catalogs from the 40s, for example, which have, uh, you know, that postdates my book, but I'm, I have something I'm working on from the 40s that will fall outside of the scope of the book. But anyway, there are some installation photographs of those exhibitions. So that was my first discovery when I went down into the stacks and was so super excited, you know, and it totally informed this article that I wrote this year. So that's pretty great. Yeah, one thing I should have mentioned earlier is um, working with the collections at the Delaware Art Museum because they have fantastic collections of illustration. They have some Lion Deckers, they have some John Sloan work. And what I found in their John Sloan collection, I mean, everyone over there is so wonderful and accommodating. Um, they have done a really smart job in building up that collection of Sloan. And they have um, covers he made that are, well, they're parodying people's work. Like the, he'll take a Maxfield Parrish cover of pirates or an illustration, interior illustration, a full page of pirates, let's say, um, with a huge sail and he'll, he'll poke holes into it to make it a piece of cheese, you know, or on another, on the cover of Delineator, he, there's a pretty girl and he'll take a straight razor. She's cutting herself at the neck. So I think that kind of um, 
inter-artistic commentary and critique I find really interesting, you know, considering how certain artists are, position themselves as, you know, um, inside or outside of various commercial networks and, um, you know, they're, they're in competition with one another in various ways. So, yeah, that I was so excited to see that collection. I don't know how it'll factor into the book yet, but um, it seems important to think about as many illustrators in these networks as I can. To learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections, visit hagley.org slash research. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot org. To listen to more Stories from the Stacks, you can find us at hagley.org slash stories from the stacks, all one word, or subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud. Our music was Open Flames by Blue Dot Sessions, available at www.sessions.blue.